Welcome to our Cole Conversations. I'm Jay Howard, an instructor in the Department of Communication at Missouri State University. And we're here to have conversations with some of the amazing, dedicated people who make up the Reynolds College of Arts and Letters community. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jen Mervin, an instructor in the Department of English and the owner of Pagination Bookshop right here in Springfield, Missouri. After that, I check in with Dr. Sean Wall. We talk about what's on our minds this week, and the conversation turns to a recent research interest of Sean's, which is the topic of anticipated grief and the stages of grief. In the conversation you're about to hear first, Jen and I talk about stories of connection between the College of Arts and Letters and Pagination Bookshop. We talk about the classes Jen teaches, including creative nonfiction, which is an interesting class to teach, especially right now, as well as courses about the graphic novel and sequential art, which are set to be part of the new interdisciplinary graphic narrative certificate. We also discuss the age old question, does listening to an audiobook really count as reading? Jen, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much. This is very exciting. So I'll just start off by saying I'm a huge fan of the of the shop. Um, I have been to the, uh, some of the poetry nights, poetry readings that you've held, participated in the book clubs. This was in the before times, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. But I've also attended some of the virtual events you've held in the past year. And um, I even have a pair of socks with sloths reading books on them from Pagination Bookshop. So thank you for that. Yay. I love those. <laughs> yes. So since you're both an instructor in English and a bookshop owner, I would like to ask you about the overlap that may exist between those two vocations for you. Are there any stories of crossover between Pagination Bookshop and the Reynolds College of Arts and Letters community? Oh my gosh, yes, for sure. Well, and you know, I really came of age in the College of Arts and Letters at Missouri State in so many ways. I received my master's degree in English at Missouri State, and then I've been teaching in the English department for now 12 years. So in, in large part, yes, everything that I, <laughs> that I do professionally and with my work, you know, in, in English and in, you know, thinking about bringing literature to the community is so intimately tied to Missouri State and my colleagues and my mentors um, in the college. So, so yes, to me, pagination is just an extension of the work that I have been doing as a teacher for a long time. You know, Springfield's a great town for the arts. And for me, the College of Arts and Letters has always sort of been the, the beating heart of that. And, you know, I just kind of had this moment, I'm gonna be 40 this year. And I, you know, a couple of years ago, I just thought, I just kind of want to amp up and do something a little, I don't know if it was a midlife crisis or some kind of impulse, but, you know, I thought we just need an indie bookstore in town. And I've always had a passion for bookstores. Whenever we would go on trips, that would always be like my first place I would look up in the city where we would go. And, you know, my son would be like, oh, mom, another bookstore. I'd be like, yes, yes, we're going to all the bookstores in the town. So yeah, in that way, for sure, just every, I feel like just who I am is so informed by the college in, in so many ways. And then sort of formally with the things that we've done at the shop, 
some of the first writers I reached out to were former students, uh, colleagues, uh, a few we've had, you know, in the before times come and <laughs> come and do um, book releases at our shop. I was really excited that the writer Liz Brazil, um, who won the Prairie Schooner Book Prize, which is one of the most prestigious prizes. And then this past year, she won a, a National Endowment of the Arts grant. So she came and did a big event with us. And then one of, and she was a former student of mine and a graduate of Missouri State. And then another student of mine, Bretta Warmer, we hosted her for her. Um, yes. Oh my gosh. You have her book right there, Honey Pot. Yes. So she, that was such a great event. And that was, gosh, that might've been one of our last events that big events that we had in the shop. Cause that was over the holidays, uh, moving from 2019 to 2020. So, um, in that way, yes. And my students bringing them in colleagues, different of my colleagues have read at different open mics. And also we are part of the programming for Arts Fest every year. So um, for example, uh, my colleague, the poet Marcus Cafania has read for that. And then um, one of my comic students, she is a beautiful illustrator, uh, Ariel Messerer did a lot of artwork in our shop. So she did some muraling in the shop and she also has designed some personalized cards for us for the holidays. And then my colleague, uh, Cole Klosser in the Department of Art and Design, who I teach comics with, designed our Pagination Bookshop logo. So that was his gift to us um, when we first started the shop. So yes, I could not do this without the beautiful family and community of, of the college. That's so wonderful. I already feel like I'm worried I forgot to name name people. I mean, I should also say that my colleagues were, you know, the first people I floated this idea by and thinking everyone's going to tell me this is a crazy idea not to do it. But instead they all were like, yes, let, do it immediately. Um, my dear friend, Shannon Wooden, Dr. Wooden, who's in the department was just a huge support. Lynette Cadel, um, Dr. Cadel gave us a bunch of books for our used, in used inventory to begin. And then Dr. Mosier, Linda Mosier, I remember when I first announced that I was opening the shop, she sent me this beautiful set of postcards with this little card that said, you know, dear brand new bookshop owner, you know, with love and support from Linda. And so, you know, in that way, my department has just been incredible. My colleague, Leslie, just came by the shop yesterday to get books for her son. And so, yeah, it's, I feel like it's just a big extension of a big family that I already was really lucky enough to have in the English department and in the college. It's hard for me to separate my life because it's just so, this is just my lifestyle is my work with English and my colleagues and who are all my best friends in the world and then my students. And one of the most important um, integrations of my work in the shop is the fact that our employee, Shane Page, was my student, um, my undergraduate student in creative writing and then a graduate student in creative writing. And now he is just the heart of our shop. He runs the day-to-day -day everything and is mostly the first person that people talk to when they come into the store. And I'm just so grateful to have him work for us and be part. He always says team pagination. Yeah. So the fact that my student is, you know, a partner in all of this is, is a huge deal too. I'd like to uh, talk about the curated book bundles. Oh yeah. And offering at the store. I got one myself. Oh, did you like it? Yeah. I loved oh, good. it. Okay. Good. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. And 
I'm, I'm assuming, so the context of this is, you know, you're up and running for a few years and, mm-hmm. and then the pandemic hits yeah. and browsing is way, is probably way down at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We were closed for about eight weeks. Okay. Browsing. Did that idea grow out of, grow out of that as like, as a solution to it or? Yes. Well, we had always, curation was always such a huge part of our shop. I mean, one was it's just one is a practical issue because our shop is so small. We have to be really careful about what we carry. And we did want to have a mix of new and used. And we've actually transitioned into more new books. And our used books are are mostly in the vein of poetry, um, literary fiction, uh, creative nonfiction, and some sci-fi and fantasy when we can keep them on the shelves. It's actually very hard to find really good used sci-fi fantasy. Um, so we try to seek that out as much as possible. Um, but yeah, the curated bundles, the curated book bundles came, we had a, a dear, a dear friend donate a bunch of books to the shop, um, from their library when they moved. And so we had these incredible books and we thought, why don't we just do this bundle? Cause we were already kind of doing it sort of in kind of a non-organized way, people would would do this or ask us and we would do it, but we just hadn't formalized it yet into a product. Okay. Um, but yeah, now we do. You can go on our website and um, just click on curated use book bundle and write a little note telling us what kind of books you like. And it's been one of our favorite things. We did a bunch for the holidays and then we wrap them up all cute with tissue paper and ribbon and stamps. And it's fun. It's like a puzzle. It's, you know, we're trying to match that new book that's just going to excite this reader, you know, and so depending on who gets the order, either Shane will do it or I will do it or often Shane and I will do do it together and kind of consult and, you know, be like, okay, what do we have? What is it? You know, and it was a lot of, it's just a lot of fun. I just did one this weekend. So yeah. Well, yeah, it was a great experience. I did it during like kind of during the initial lockdown. Yeah. And when I walked in, there were just maybe 25 or 30 just uh, bags with name, people's names on them. And I found mine and, yeah. and just went home like it was Christmas. But you mentioned the curation being a big part of, of your philosophy. And I, um, mm-hmm. I read that in the mission statement on the, on the website. Yeah. In one interview, you referred, I think, to yourself as, I think, a, a pharmacist for books. Yeah. We, yeah. We always talk about that. It's almost like, you know, you tell us what's going on with you and maybe we can match a book for what you're going through or, you know, what kind of, I mean, I truly believe that literature has helped me get through things, you know, and, or help me make sense of things that don't make sense. And so, yeah, in that way, I feel like books and reading and literature is, is a way to, to heal ourselves and to, um, you know, confront things that we need to confront. And so, yeah, I mean, I use that term very loosely, but yeah, I mean, it's, you're almost like a matchmaker, right? You're matching your customer with that book that might change their lives, which to me is the gift of teaching literature to college students. You know, a lot of times students will come into my classes and Maybe they've read, you know, maybe they've been lifelong readers and they've been really voracious readers, which is fantastic. Or maybe they haven't really read very much. And the only novels they've read have been the ones assigned in school. And so it's been the gift of 
my life to say, hey, look at all these amazing short stories or let's read these novels or let's read these memoirs and then have them write to me like, you know, I didn't, I just never really liked reading until we read this book and, or I, I didn't know writing would be so funny until I read this story. And so, you know, to me, again, the bookshop is just an extension of the work that I do as a teacher. The other, the other phrase that I loved from the mission statement that really stuck out to me was the magic of the browse. Yes. That to me is the beautiful thing. Like, you know, when we shop for books online, it's, you know, Raven bookstore in, in Lawrence, Kansas always talks about this idea of humans, not algorithms, you know, and if we shop online, you don't get that browse. You don't get that. Oh, this is a cool book. Or I love this cover or, you know, this bookseller rec- recommends this book and here's a little blurb about it. I'm just going to pick it up. And, you know, you don't have that surprise um, when you're shopping online. So to me, that's the beauty of having an actual bookstore where you can physically pick up a book and put it down. Book people are all about books as objects, you know, and I, I've had that experience so many times of walking into the bookshop and just somehow going into some kind of trance and then finding myself back at home with like seven different books, some of which I've never heard of before, (laughs) and also a pair of socks. (laughs) Yes, you have to have the socks. We have so many book themed socks. Yeah, and everyone gets those for a gift. And all kinds of other cool gifts too, right? Oh yes, we have lots of different gifts because just book, book anything is fun for me. Like we have stickers and pencil bags and tote bags and we actually have tattoos right now, like temporary tattoos, um, puzzles. It's so funny because I'm still that way, even though I know in my head, like Jen, you own a bookstore. You don't need to buy 10 books at this bookstore on vacation. And where are you going to put that in your suitcase? But, you know, it just happens. I go into the trance too. I can't help it. One thing that the people I don't feel like really realize about our shop is that we're a beautiful gifting service. Like I, if you tell me that you want to send a puzzle and a book and a journal and some pens and an origami set to your nephew in Washington state. I do that for you and just send you an email invoice and it's a beautiful personal gift. So if anybody wants to gift through us, it's one of my favorite things on the planet. Well, you you clearly have a passion for, for books, for literature, and also for teaching. And you've mentioned how this dovetails with your work as a teacher as well. So what classes do you teach at Missouri State? So I teach in the creative writing program and I'm very, I, I've always been very interested in all kinds of literature. I originally started in the department just teaching fiction and then I have a big passion for comics and graphic narrative. So I started teaching comics along with my fiction classes. This semester I have, I have classes in creative nonfiction, which I really love teaching right now. It's a very interesting and intense time to be teaching creative nonfiction. But it's an honor and a privilege to, you know, read students' very personal work where the stakes are extremely high. And I also teach a literature class for the creative writing program. We have a contemporary American literature class that I really love teaching. Um, I teach that every other year and I just teach really like beautiful contemporary novels that are engaging me. Um, sometimes I'll pick a book I haven't even read yet, but you know, I'm hearing buzz about and it seems like it's going to be important and we read it together. And then I also teach a uh, form and theory of prose graduate seminar, which is a really fun literature course where we talk about literary theory um, as create as sort of in relationship to the writing life and being a writer. And so we, we read typically in those literature classes about eight books 
eight novels and then plus the theory texts on top of that. So I just taught that in the fall. We had kind of an emphasis on magical realism and speculative fiction. So that was fun and kind of appropriate, I feel like, for what we're all going through. So yeah, I teach a lot of different classes in, in the English department, but it keeps things exciting and new for me, which I really love. And then, you know, every semester I find myself assigning new books I've never taught before. So got to revamp all the materials, but I just get so excited. I read all these new books and I want to share them with my students immediately. The beauty of creative nonfiction is it's a huge umbrella, you know, that covers just a lot of different writing. But to me, yeah, what makes creative nonfiction creative nonfiction is it's a true story. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, and there is invention. There's a lot of invention that happens with creative nonfiction and it can be very experimental or it can be more, you know, on the side of reportage or it can be much more memoir or it can be something in between that's personal essay. Like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's just such a wonderful wide range. I just love it. The range of it. And then the, the things that people are obsessed with and they just have to write about. Like, I just love that. It excites me as a reader and you never, it's a different kind of reading when you read creative nonfiction. And I think it's a different kind. It's definitely a different kind of writing and exercises a different part of you emotionally. You mentioned it's a, it's an interesting class to teach right now. And you mentioned, you know, high stakes and students are writing personal things. Do you get more that sense more now in this time of, you know, uncertainty than you would normally see? You know, yes and no. I mean, I think definitely I see more students engaging in writing about political subjects. And I see, I think more students just taking the classes. I've seen Hmm. um, just more increased enrollment in creative nonfiction and interest in creative nonfiction. You know, the amount of vulnerability and personal sharing and these kind of high stakes, um, that's that's remained the same. It just is sort of, I've been noticing some shifts in subject matter, um, but that could also be in relation to what I'm assigning because, you know, we're reading a lot of, we, we write directly out of the books that we're reading, you know? Um, so for example, I love to teach the book, um, The Undying by Ann Boyer, which won the Pulitzer Prize last year in creative nonfiction. And it's a stunning book about her experience with breast cancer and a double mastectomy. And she's a poet. And so the book is, yes, it's about that, but it's also about how do we write about pain What are the stories that are told about illness? You know, she writes a lot about the problems with the medical care system in our country. Um, She has this one section where she just adds up how much her treatment has cost. And she says, you know, am I worth this amount of dollars? I mean, it's just, so when students are reading that and I ask them to write about the body or write about narrative medicine or write about, how we talk about pain, you know, that's going to lead to a certain kind of writing from them. So it, there's always been, I think it just is led by the books that we're reading and the things that we're talking about. It will get them excited to write, but it's a big responsibility. Sometimes I just have to take a break after reading my students' work and responding to them. Sometimes it takes me three hours to respond to one student's 500 word passage because it's very personal and intense. And I have to find that right balance of addressing the content and then also the techniques that the student's using. So it's very, cha- it's very hard. That's heavy. It's very heavy. And, but it's a, it's a gift and an honor 
you know, to be on the other end. Sometimes I know students are writing this and I'm the only one who's ever heard them say that. And that's fine. This is a perfectly safe space for them to do that. But yeah, I take that responsibility very seriously. And it, yeah, sometimes I have to take a little beat after it because it's, yeah, but it's beautiful. And that's why I feel like when you teach writing it, like I said, like, it's hard for me to separate the shop from the college, from just my home and myself, because it all feels like it's the same. One of the, one of the things that you mentioned that you have a passion for is comics. Yeah. When you say comics, are, you, are we talking about Sunday morning comics? Are we talking about graphic novels? Are you talking about the old uh, superhero comic books? Probably not the old superhero comic books, though. My son really loves um, The Black Panther by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which is fantastic. And a lot of my students, that's the way that they're introduced to graphic narrative and comics. Um, but yeah, you know, I, and yes, to all of the above, for sure, because it's a medium. You know, it's just another way to write. And I find it beautiful to read. Um, I just, I love art. I've always loved art. I had a, a very sort of rocky series of, of majors where I was trying to figure out what I love to do because I'm so interested in so many things. So one of my many majors was uh, art education. Uh, I wanted to teach little kids, you know, because I just find little kids so inspiring. They're so open with making art and there's not that critic. They just do it because it's fun and because it's natural and it just... So that always just so appealed to me and inspired me. You know, Linda Berry, who's a, a writer that I teach all the time, always talks about getting back to that childlike joy of making art and just creation for the sake of doing it because it feels good to us as human beings. So yeah, so all of the above, I love Roz Chast, who, you know, is a cartoonist for The New Yorker and does those sort of one-off single panel cartoons or like a series. And then I love the longer graphic novels. I love graphic memoir. My, my son is 13. And so a lot of the books that he was first excited about reading, you know, and would like disappear into a book or comics. So I feel like it's important and, and can really help kids get excited about reading. Um, so yeah, and it's fun to teach too, you know, I'm, I, I just love it. Yeah. It's interdisciplinary. Cole and I, Cole Klosser and I teach these wonderful interdisciplinary classes, usually at Brick City, though this semester we're doing it on Zoom virtually, you know, because of everything going on. I see that he teaches Art 320, Graphic Narrative. Yeah, so yeah, that's actually a cross-listed class. So it's the same as my Graphic Narrative 2 class in English, and we just teach it together. Mm-hmm. Okay. English 216. Three, yeah. 316 is the one that's cross-listed. Oh, yeah. So, and then now of course we have um, just starting this past fall semester, art and design is offering a sequential art track to the, the BFA in design degree. So now you can choose a, a comics track that we call it sequential art. And then uh, in English we're, we're offering a graphic narrative certificate. So students that you know, aren't necessarily getting their degree in design, but want to show, you know, a graduate school or potential employer that they have this expertise will now have the certificate to sort of show they've taken these particular classes and have this skill set and this experience with this certain area of literature. Very cool. And so an interdisciplinary certificate in that case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a blend of English classes and design classes. When does it begin? Um... Well, it's still making its way up 
you know, the curricular process. It, I think it just passed the college level. So that's exciting. Um, so we're hoping that it will be formally on in the course catalog and students can choose it in the fall of 2021. Excellent. Look, look forward to that. Yeah, I'm so excited. It's been a long time coming. So I'm thrilled. That reminds me of a logistical question. You mentioned the class was cross-listed. Mm-hmm. So are, are you, are you co-teaching it? Yeah. So we co-teach it. So traditionally in person, like Cole and I would get together, you know, we, we plan our curriculum beforehand. And then usually a traditional class session would be like, Cole would do part of the day. I would do part of the day. Or if he was doing like a larger presentation, let's say about inking, you know, that would maybe take more time that day would be focused and he would take up the majority or if I was introducing a new genre like um, like the magical realist mode. I would maybe take the full day. Um, but yeah, with online, we're sort of we're experimenting on how to do that because um, no one wants to sit on Zoom for that long. <laughs> so we're kind of you know we're always there together. Everything is so interrelated. You can't really separate it out um, with comics. The illustrations are narrative, and so I mean you just everything is so combined. But yeah, it's so fun to co-teach. I can't recommend it enough. It's hard logistically, like you said, like we had to figure out this whole cross-listed thing. And now these certificates are all interdisciplinary between English and art and design. But I think that's meeting the way that modern students, students don't want to be put on this tiny narrow path. They really want to be holistic artists. They want to do, they want to do film. They want to do photography. They want to draw. They want to write. They want to make videos. You know, they want to be, they want to do all these things, which is so exciting. So that's what I love about our college is we provide formal avenues for that kind of work to happen. And we want our students to be fully themselves and reach the range of their interests and talents. But yeah, it's, it's been really fun to co-teach. This is the first time I've ever done that. And Cole and I have been doing it now for four years, five years. I think we've had, we've been doing it for five years. And then now the track is there and it's very exciting. just read constantly, but I am aware that a lot of people don't do that or can't. Mm-hmm. I encourage them to listen to audiobooks. Mm-hmm. you know, anytime, any way you can get that in your brain. When you ask me about podcasts uh, and the growth of podcasts, like I've been listening to a lot more of them, but for me, the podcasts have eaten into my audiobook time. Yeah. I've always been an audiobook listener and I can listen listen to them really fast, but it's it's easier. In some ways, it's a different kind of attention. It is. To just listen to a bunch of podcasts and a little bit more difficult to stick with a long... I don't... My partner, Coop, he listens to um, audiobooks constantly and I just... I can't. I have... I love looking. I can't. I, my mind wanders. I forget where we are. It goes too slow. I would have to read them. But yeah, I don't know. I just love looking at it. And I also like watching how sentences are on. I don't know. See, I've, I've always been a slow visual reader. Mm-hmm. I, I, I never really mastered the, the ability to read fast or like, yeah, because some people can speed read with, with very good retention. Yeah. But I like, if I had a superpower, it would be listening to things on like two or three X speed with, with retention. That's incredible. Wow. How interesting. Yeah. And some students will be like, does it count? Do you count it as being read if I listen to an audiobook?" And I always say yes. 
Mm-hmm. But that is something that like people go back and forth on in pedagogical. Yeah. Isn't that an interesting question? Because it is. I was thinking about that the other day and it seems to me like, so if we, if we say I read a book, right. There's a cultural sort of cachet to that. Yes. And so, and the idea is if you, if you only listened to it, then right. you can't really claim to have sat quietly in your chair with your bubble pipe and actually read a book, you right. know? Right. Yeah. Um, but to me, it's about, ingesting the story you know yeah. and I, to me like I tell my students like if you can do both that would be great but if you need to read if you are like in the car and you commute all the time and the way that you get this book read is through an audiobook that absolutely counts but I think as writers you know we have to look at how the sentences are deployed on the page we have to look at things like where the paragraphs are you know I mean just the physical experience of reading is so important when you're a writer (laughs) pagination yes pagination exactly (laughs) exactly which is so funny because a lot of people get confused and think we're a pagan store I can't tell you it's probably at least three times a week we get people coming in and I'm like where's all the wicked books yes they're like isn't this a pagan store we're like no, because that's not even how you spell pagan. So I don't know. But anyway, it's confusing. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I, you know, I think it's important to look at to look at the book. But for my son, for example, I just want him to be excited about reading. Mm. And so for me, like if he's listening to an audiobook, yay! Like if that's all he did, I'd be excited, ecstatic. That's exact I relate to that hundred percent. When I yeah. was little, my mom read books to us out loud. Yeah. Um just just so much. Um, That's so wonderful. From when I was very, very young. And so we, you know, we read Lord of the Rings and yeah. as one example. And, and when we finished Lord of the Rings, we'd go back to the beginning and read it again. Yeah. It's so important, like, to just sit with, just to be with a book, however that is, if you're listening to it, if you're, but I feel like if you're formally studying writing and you are wanting to be a, a writer and you want to major in writing, you need to be looking at words on the page as well as listening. I think a combination is, I feel like I should probably listen to more audiobooks because it's so much of a way that people are interacting with literature, that readers are interacting with literature. I love the Lincoln and the Bardo audiobook. That's a great example. That was a book I found incomprehensible on the page. I tried and I'm like, I'm sorry, I just, I don't understand. Yeah. But when I listened to it with the different voices, yeah. um, it was a little bit I have heard that from so many people about that book. And in fact, when students or readers come into the shop and tell me that they had a hard time reading that book, I always tell them, go listen to the audio. Absolutely. Yeah. You make a good point about needing to like see, see the words on the page because I can't think of any counterfactual where there's a work of literature that was composed without using the written words and only like into a dictaphone. Right. And then it goes from there straight to the reader's ears. Maybe tradition mm-hmm. yeah for sure certain kinds but but that's certainly not the way it's done now yeah there was one that I was listening to NPR and it was only out on audiobook but it's like for <laughs> sure they wrote it down in the composition before. process yeah I yeah so I don't know I it, it's good to be aware of all these things and now it's an indie bookseller in fact, I was go- going back and forth with my sister about this the other day because audiobooks are one of those tricky things mm where Amazon and Audible really have a monopoly on audiobooks. Um, there is a there is a company called Libro FM yeah. where um, you can support in, independent bookstores through your audiobook purchase, but not all books that are audiobooks 
Audible has like exclusive audiobook rights with certain books. So you have to have an Audible account. That's not good. To get it. And so, yeah, actually Raven Bookstore that I mentioned earlier, they have a really interesting book that is actually coming out. The owner, Danny Kane, wrote it about like the way that Amazon is intruding on hmm. literature as a commodity. Yeah. And it's scary when you think about it. Wow, yeah. And that, that brings up the the benefit of book as object again. Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, a used, a used book can have a thousand lives in the hands of thousands of people. Yes. And nobody, no big data company knows who has it or yes. had any control over whether you got it or not. Yeah, that's so true. And it's, it's so new to me. And I learn so much more every day about book selling and just publishing and the process which I hope helps me be a better writing teacher. Oh, no doubt. You know, it's been a hard year. It's been, I haven't seen my family. My family lives in Southern California. We usually go back and visit at least four times a year and I haven't seen them in over a year. And it's, you know, it's, it's hard for me because I miss them and I'm very close with my family. And, you know, babies have been born and my little niece, you know, is tiny. And so a big year is a long time to miss when they're that little, but at the same time, there's so much to be grateful for. I'm, I'm so grateful for this community. And I'm very fortunate that my family and my friends, I roll that all into the community because so many of my personal relationships are related to the arts. And a lot of my very best friends here in town are also teachers and educators or work in nonprofit or artists in some way. We would get messages saying like, how can we help you? We just want to support you. Um, all the people over the holidays who said, you know, I'm really making an effort to shop local this year. Um, that made a huge difference for us. But so I don't know, I could go on and on, but I'm very grateful for community. And Missouri State has always been a part of that. Like I said, you know, ever since I came to Missouri State as a student, it's just been a formative part of, of my, my entire life. Hey, Jay. How are you? Hey, good. How are you? Doing good. I recently had a conversation with Jen Mervin, which the audience just heard, and I'm so thankful to her for sharing her story and thoughts with us. That's one of the things that's, that's truly inspiring with the people, the people we work with at the university, but specifically within the, the Reynolds College. You have people, stories, it's stories. It's the story of Jen Mervin, who works full-time at the university as an exceptional teacher and writer, and then also is connecting with faculty and people in the community through a small business. I just think mm -hmm. it's an incredible story, really incredible. And when people, people ask me, you know, what do you enjoy about your work? It sort of goes outside of, of anything I do. It's the things that I get to see, uh, the stories that are told, the the art and the research and the teaching and all those, those exceptional things really does give meaning um, uh, to, to what we do together. I had some ideas for potential themed episodes. Um, when I was talking to Jen, she was talking, to a, she was talking about a colleague of hers. She had this colleague who was really interested in this concept of narrative medicine, Dr. Shannon Wooden. And uh, so narrative medicine got me thinking about just health in general. And I know in the communication department, we have health communication and a lot of interesting scholarship that goes on related to health 
So then I thought, okay, there's an English person talking about health and calm people talking about health. And I know there's such a thing as music therapy, um, which is in the music department and who knows what other applications of arts and letters disciplines going to either therapeutic ends or promoting public health or personal health in some way. So that's an idea that I'm kind of germinating right now. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, we teach uh, communication skills and talk so much about power skills. And uh, I know that we've recently exchanged some messages about listening and how important listening courses. And obviously that's a course that's, uh, that's offered in the Department of Communication within the college. It's just amazing how you can take something that uh, might seem so simple or that we take for granted. And if we can actually listen to a meaningful message and set a goal or change in some way, it's, it's, it's really profound. Or to your point about health, how a unplanned conversation can be a meaningful moment. It can be something that truly can inspire someone to change a behavior or to maybe even be in a workplace situation and you can have, you know, you can experience a life lesson where you, where you have a different outlook on that day or a change of behavior that uh, can impact um, other people for years to come. You mentioned listening and it occurs to me that there is a, there's a chapter in the listening textbook that we were talking about, about like listening in health contexts. And it had to do specifically with like the doctor's office, the type of listening doctors need to use. Uh, and then conversely, the type of listening that patients need to use, um, which are di different styles of listening and the willingness to be an advocate for yourself and say like, now, wait a minute, I'm not understanding what you're saying. Can you repeat it <laughs> as a, as a patient? And as you know, that's a, that's a listening skill to try to get people to repeat something you didn't understand. Well, I'm also reminded of the importance of, you know, I, I'll just share, you know, something that I've been thinking a lot about. And really living is uh, is anticipated grieving, mm -hmm. and that's that's something that is uh, really hard to prepare for and to really understand. I mean, we can all read whether that's traditional stages of grieving, and we you know we would all ex we all would experience that those stages in different ways. But when you're anticipating loss, or if you're in the the position of a patient with a terminal illness the power of a physician or a nurse or a family member or a friend and the, the overall power that being able to, to just be with another person and to have another person really listen to you and be in the moment with you is, is uh, something that I, I think that we take for granted. And when we think about uh, physician training and, and all of the, the uh, research uh, that we have in, in health communication, it's really difficult to you know, to train uh, nurses and physicians in, uh, I guess, what we would traditionally call bedside manner. Oh, absolutely. It's really, really difficult to, to sort of train that, I guess. I can't imagine. It seems like, yeah, with that, you, you either have it temperamentally or else it's going to be very difficult to learn. Yeah, we do. And we talk about that as in political communication as well, or in just in public leadership is, is temperament, where, whether someone's fit for a position or not, a temperament tends to be uh, the way we talk about that or describe that. Well, you said you were doing some reading or thinking about anticipated grieving. Um, can I ask you more about that? Where did the um, interest in that topic come from for you most recently? I think a lot of it comes came about with, uh, with just so much loss. We have uh, 
a lot of, of anticipated grieving that's, I guess, that's across the world. Um, I have a friend, um, someone I went to school with, and both of his parents are, are victims to COVID-19. And so mm. just have been thinking a lot about that. And I've talked with, uh, with people, my close friends and family members, as well as colleagues, um, just about the, the overall grieving process of losing, you know, losing parents or, or loved ones. And so my, my mom and dad both passed away uh, pretty, you know, pretty close together. Uh, my father passed away in 2018 and my mom passed away in late 2019. It's just very, very difficult. So I find myself really uh, thinking a lot about that and then also reading about it. And so uh, that's where the notion of anticipated grieving sort of came to mind because it's, we think of the traditional stages of grieving from from losing a friend, a loved one, et cetera. But when you're you're anticipating someone, if you have a family member, friend, a colleague, even even if it's an unknown, where you're um, maybe someone that you you don't know, and you learn that they've uh, you know are facing terminal diagnosis, just the the uh, the process that one goes through to anticipate loss, it's uh, overwhelming. And so I I know that that's a that's a really dark or sad topic, but it's something that I especially as a communication researcher, it's something I've been drawn to uh, over the past past year or so. I'm sure that's something that's heavy on the minds of so many of us, you know, I heard something about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who, you know, coined originally the five stages of grief, just recently added a sixth stage. Um, And it it occurred to me that anticipated grief would be like stage zero, um, or or like a negative stage. But yeah, stage six was something about long term healing, um, or the idea that it never fully goes away. You know, people say, haven't you got over that yet or something? Um, but it's, it doesn't go away, it just changes. Um, and so they were talking more about that, that additional stage of grief. Sounds like an extension to acceptance, that acceptance isn't just a switch, that you have to, in the moment, say, okay, I, I've realized and accepted that this is what's happened, but then there's that next process of, of, um, of being where it's not, you don't, you just don't arrive at acceptance. You may have a starting point. And then that next, it sounds like that next stage is a continuance of sort of the process of acceptance over periods of time. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly the five, five stages in the last stage. And here she is talking about the seven stages. Sorry. I'm, I'm like Googling this in real time, which is probably not good etiquette. Uh, shock or disbelief denial, anger, bargaining, guilt, depression, acceptance, and hope. Hmm. So maybe hope is the term that they used. But if you if if you were to add anticipated grief, then that could be eight, eight stages. Well, and that's why the when you when you look at the the various guests uh, on the on the podcast, whether we're we're celebrating or or spotlighting performance or reading or music, so many of the things that that we have within the Reynolds College of Arts and Letters, those can shape uh, healing and it can li- it lifts it lifts people up. And that's one of the things that I really miss. And and I know that we'll get back to it soon, but you know, I really miss uh, live theater and live musical performances because those are for me, those are things that are experiences that are uplifting and motivational and really give us a chance to heal. And if we're in a challenging time personally or, or uh, nationally or globally, there's so much music that can really can inspire and does inspire hope. Mm. That's why I'm really ready to go back to the theater and 
I, I miss that live music, uh, all, all of those things. Absolutely. I was reflecting on that and thinking, you know, College of Arts and Letters has traditionally been called lovingly the College of Cheap Dates because, uh, there, you know, there's always something great going on. Um, you can go to whether it's a theatrical performance, a reading, recital, on and on. And of course, in this time, uh, those have been greatly reduced, although they're still happening um, and people have been very nimble. You were talking about the word pivot earlier. Uh, a lot of these have gone online or changed form. Um, but it's fair to say that they're reduced in number this past year. And so I just had this curiosity about like, what are, what is people's entertainment diets these days? And what are people missing the most about the things that they used to do entertainment wise going to the theater? And have you had the opportunity to attend any arts events in any form uh, lately? Or um, if not, what are you missing? Well, I know that's something that we've been in conversation about, Jay, and so I took that as a challenge. You know, I knew that uh, you, were, you were interested in talking about that, and so um, yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, it really is different with um, not having the you know the, the live because in, in in arts and letters we have so much live theater. I mean, it's almost you know almost every night, and and that has been different. But I uh, I've actually attended a couple of. Uh, town halls, online town halls recently. And I know that we we may be overusing the word town hall, and it certainly is different than a face-to-face town hall, but I was really inspired by, uh, I just attended as a, as a Zoom participant, but it was the Department of English. And there were a number of uh, faculty panelists, and we were talking about advising and the uh, the different courses and tracks within the Department of English and in a in a different way the Department of Theater and Dance also had a town hall but it was an announcement for the academic season for next year for the for next uh, when we are already thinking about fall 2021 2022 and then of course the uh, and I think this is a, a great a great segment for the future and I know I know that we'll be talking about tent theater soon um, on an on an upcoming up and coming episode and uh, so those are a, a couple of things most recently I realized, well, this is, these are, these town halls are events that are, I often say that, you know, my job is to show up. And so while I showed up, uh, you know, with a uh, driven by curiosity, I also learned a lot. And uh, that was really a pleasure to take in one of the letters areas being the Department of English. And then of course, the Department of Theater and Theater and Dance. As far as uh, the other aspect of your question is what I've been taking in as far as entertainment, uh, I have to admit that I'm, um, I'm truly a news junkie. So, uh, you know, when I, when I try to wind down, it's not necessarily the best thing to, <laughs> to uh, watch uh, cable news, but, but I'm fascinated by it. And I, I sort of surf and the main interest is, is, is really what's going on. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm fascinated with journalism and, and storytelling and just uh, just so many of the different perspectives of the world and, and differences of, of opinion related to, you know, current events. What about you? Well, um, my podcast listening is up and my Netflix watching is up as well um, in this, this past year. One television show that I've enjoyed and it relates to the, it was kind of actually the thing that made me raise this question of entertainment diet 
is the television show on the History Channel called Alone. It is a, it's like a survival type reality show where the participants are dropped off in the woods of somewhere in Canada and they have to record their own, because they're there by themselves, have to record their own activities of building shelter, securing food, hunting for food, trapping, fishing. But one, one interesting thing that I noticed was after their immediate needs were met, all of them turned their attention in some way or another to entertainment. One of them was like whittling chess pieces and another contestant like turned his attention to making a three stringed instrument and someone made a drum out of this old like uh, animal hide that they found. And it just occurred to me that there's something so deeply human and like just elemental about the arts, you know, and, and doing something that adds that's beyond just living that adds an outlet for creativity and expression. And I was refreshed by that because here I am sitting there watching Netflix (laughs) and there's this, I don't know, some people look down their noses and say, you know, you shouldn't quote unquote, waste your time in frivolous pursuits. You should be doing some serious work or something. But the fact is recreation is a, a human need. And that I thought, I don't know, I just really needed to be reminded of that during that time. So I, I agree. I think that the, the the topic of entertainment or just the, the notion of diet of what, what are we taking in related to, uh, you know, different genres, news. But when we imagine the history book of 2020 and 2021, I think we'll probably see a, a major shift in what it means to go to the movies. What does it mean to go to a show? It's uh, it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. We've done, we definitely had, had uh, shifts in so many things and in terms of experience. That's it for this episode of Our Cole Conversations. If you want to learn more about Jen and her work as a curator of literature, visit paginationbookshop.com. There you'll find curated book lists, including picture books and middle reader books. You'll find an anti-racism reading list, which is always 15% off, as well as other lists and products curated by Jen and Team Pagination. There's also lots of events in the works at Pagination. In the summer, book club will be back and it will be virtual. I'm also marking my calendar now for March 25th when Pagination will virtually host Sophronia Scott who has a BA in English from Harvard and an MFA in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts and is the author of the new book, The Seeker and the Monk, Everyday Conversations with Thomas Merton. Again, that's March 25th. As always, please subscribe to Oracle Conversations wherever you get your podcasts and share the show on social media. You can also follow the college on Facebook at msu.arcole and on Twitter at msu underscore If you have ideas for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. You can find Sean Wall on Twitter or email me at jhoward at missouristate.edu. Thanks for listening.